The Old Testament in uh, Joshua chapter 7, there's this story. Many of you might not have heard of it before, but it's the story of a man named Achan. Achan. Achan uh, was a man who had a very unfortunate ending. He was killed, but his story is one of tremendous sin. And reading through his story, it's difficult to just kind of feel the weight of what was taking place in the camp at the time. If you bring yourself back into the Old Testament days, the people of God, the Israelites, had escaped from Egypt. They're now wandering through the wilderness, and, and they've had a string of battles that they've won. They're beginning to see the progress. They can hear the Lord's command coming to fruition right before their eyes that they will take the promised land. They can see it, and they're beating these major victories along the way. And then all of a sudden, they, they go up against the people of Ai, and there's a defeat. They lose. And the leader, Joshua, doesn't know what to do. He doesn't get it. They're, the, they're God's people. How could God's people have a, suffer a defeat? That wasn't in the category of things that should be taking place. God's people were supposed to win. And they come back, and we find out in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, it says this, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. The reason they lost was because they had a deep hypocrite in their camp. The command was, when you defeat Jericho, you don't take any of the gold or silver for yourself. Everything is meant for destruction. The gold and the silver will go into the tabernacle. No one takes the gold and silver for yourself. We're not plunderers right now. Achan went into the battle, this man. Turns out that he took a little of the gold for himself after that victory. Buried it away where no one would find it. So then no one knows about it, except for Achan and the few around him who are aware of this sin, this kind of Hippocratic sin that's going on inside of him where he's buried the treasure in his tent. And the people of God have no idea that that's going in among them. And they go out to battle thinking all is good and that God's for them. God's going to win this, this battle on their behalf. All of a sudden they lose Joshua goes before the Lord to find out what happened. The Lord says, you got a hypocrite in your midst. Joshua 7, verse 19 to 21. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. You can imagine this man Achan at this point standing before Joshua, the one who succeeded Moses. Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them. I took them. See, they're hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. That day, the Lord took Achan's life. And the people of God continued to move forward in power, victory after victory, until the next sinful moment came up. What happened that day was that the rot of Achan's sin was removed from the camp so that the rot did not become a plague that ended up impacting and influencing the entire church. What was Achan's sin? It was hypocrisy. There in his tent, buried underneath where no one could see it, was this gold and silver. So he was going out to the battle. He, he was saying, I'm with you. I'm, I'm part of the camp. I'm doing, we're all in this thing together. Let's, let's all move forward as one. Let's go. Let's beat those Aieites. I'm not even sure how you say it. Let's beat the city of Ai together. I'm in it. Meanwhile, he had this secondary motive. And if you would have dug in his tent, 
beneath the surface of what his outward appearance was to everybody. If you would have dug underneath, what you would find was the evidence that his heart was not fully for the Lord. What you would have found is that he was a hypocrite. He had a double standard. He had an outward life and an inward life, and he had fell short. And the Lord fixed that problem real quick. Today we continue through the book of Acts, and we come to a a very unsettling story, which right in the text, in the New Testament, connects us to the story of Achan. I'm starting with that story. I like to get us into the Old Testament because I think a lot of us are unfamiliar with the Old Testament. I want to show it to you, reveal it, and teach it. But also, this particular text is directly connected to the story of Achan. And again, it's a story of hypocrisy. Here in this story in the book of Acts, we're going to meet and we're going to have a contrast of two characters. One, a character who is the example to follow, a man of integrity. The other is a, a two characters, Ananias and Sapphira, who are examples not to follow. They're characters and examples of hypocrisy. And we're going to study their lives and figure out what it means for us as a church. Let's begin with the example to follow, the story of Barnabas. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. Now the full number of those who believed, we're in the New Testament, the, the church is growing. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, that's the name Barnabas, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas, an example to follow. Now, to understand Barnabas, we've got to understand the context and the setting of what's taking place and try to get into the mind of this man. Who was he? What made Barnabas a son of encouragement, a man of integrity, someone to follow? Well, look, there's a threefold blessing that's taking place right in this text among the people of God at this time. Number one, we're told that they were of one heart and soul. That's right there in verse 32. The people of God were living as one heart and one soul. Now, we've covered this before where we talked about unity of mind amidst the diversity of the people that were in there. The New Testament church was made up of all these people from diverse backgrounds, diverse cultural backgrounds, diverse stories, diverse ethnicities, yet they had Jesus in common. It didn't mean that they removed their entire story and that that wasn't meaningful anymore. It just meant when they came together, they were so united on Christ that they considered themselves of one heart and soul and mind. I want to ask you, when you come into this place, are you of one heart and soul and mind with this body? When you think of the rhythms of the life of this church, are are you part of that? Do you just fit into that because you're of one heart and soul and mind? I have been on repeat and sincer said it today, praying that we would have over 100 people in that hallway at 8.15 on Sunday morning to pray. This morning we had about 26. It's what the church is doing. This this is the heart and the soul and the mind of the church. This is what we're doing. This is where we're going. Prayer is the furnace room where the power of God is stirred up so the fire of God will move forward and impact people's lives. That's what we want to see take place in this church. That's the heart and the soul, the body. I got a question. Are, Are you in one mind with the body? 
It's very easy in the New Testament area. We've covered this again. We're, we're, these are themes we're hitting on regularly in the book of Acts. In this New Testament, Constantinian, individualistic Christianity, to get into this place where the body as a whole is doing this, and you come alongside, and you're kind of like doing your own thing, but you're loosely attached. That wasn't this. The threefold blessing of the church, they were in one mind with each other. They were laboring after the same thing. They had everything in common with each other. That was number two. First, they were in one mind. Number two, they had everything in common. We're told that they were selling things they have and they were giving it to the community. Pretty radical, huh? I mean, do we have any idea what this looks like? There it is, laid out for us, right there in the book of Acts. What does it look like to be a church family? Those who have much are selling it, giving it to those who have little, and all the needs are met in the community. It's pretty amazing. Now, I want to make sure I clarify this for you. This is not a New Testament Marxism, and I want to make sure you get that. I remember a while ago I had some, uh, the local Marxist club knock on my door, and they tried to tell me that when I told them I was a Christian, they said, oh, well, Marxism is Christianity. I said, no, you, you got to make sure you get that one right. This is the difference. In Marxism, it's forced, it's forced egalitarianism. Everything is taken, and it's taken from you, and then it's equalized among everybody against your will. That's not what this was. This was freely giving. People were, had a choice. People had private property, and some people were choosing to sell some of the things they had and giving it to the apostles, and the apostles were determining how to distribute it as the needs were. It wasn't that everyone got the same thing. It just that meant that all the needs were met. Some had more. Some had less. That's wonderful. Private property is a very biblical thing. We see that all through the, the Old Testament and New Testament. And yet, in the people of God, no one went without. You see that? This was the ethic of the entire Old Testament as well. Let me just make sure you understand this. This was not just a New Testament radical church thing. If you go back, what were the people of God supposed to be doing? Deuteronomy 15:4. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. It was always God's plan that God's people would provide for each other. The idea was never that the people of God in the Old Testament would go in and then there would just be extreme poverty among them and people would just not do anything about it. That wasn't the vision. That wasn't God's heart. I once had a professor in seminary who had us go through the entire Bible with a pencil and say, every time you see God's heart for the poor, I want you to put a big like mark in your Bible. And, he, and then the project was that we came back at the end of the semester. He, he would, he, I just remember him doing this. He goes, it's like weighted down with all the weight of that, that ink in your Bible, isn't it? I mean, you just marked that. You added pounds to your Bible. Dr. Feuder. I remember him saying that in class. God has always had a heart for the poor. And here, the example that's being set for us is that those who have much are sacrificing greatly to make sure that those who have little have everything they need and that everyone in the church has everything taken care of. <laughs> the church at its best. Number three, threefold blessing. Gave, they, gave, they were giving testimonies with great power. You see that in the text? It says that verse 33, with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. The preaching of the word was clear. The apostles were telling story of what God had done, proclaiming the resurrection of the dead, and there was great power among them. 
I need you to hear this. Throughout church history, God has, by the Holy Spirit, chosen to use the proclamation and the preaching of the clarity of God's word to bring about conviction of sins and Holy Spirit-filled change in people's lives. And I want you to know here at this church, we hold the preaching of the clarity of God's word as a vital piece of what we do. To God be the glory. And here's what what I want to recommend to you. If ever, and I know, at Park South Loop, we send off as many folks as we see come into this church. I am regularly saying goodbye to people because we live in a part of the city where people are kind of on their way through. And many of you in years to come will not be here anymore. You'll be in other parts of the world. And we bless you as you go out. But I need you to know this. What What the book of Acts prioritized was the regular cadence of the apostles preaching the clarity of God's word. When you find a church, wherever you go, one of the first things you got to be looking for, are they preaching the truth from God's word? There are a lot of churches who, who cherry pick. What verses are we going to preach on this week? And they'll only cover the, the themes that are easy to preach on. They won't disrupt your life too much. And I want you to know, when you look for a church, one of the first things you got to look for is, are they going to say the hard things? Are they going to make me uncomfortable? Are they going to call me to repent? If not, you flee the walls of that church. Wherever you go from here, if they ain't preaching the Word of God, if they're not saying it with the authority of the Word of God, you get out of there and you find a church that is. That's the setting. And into that setting comes this man, Barnabas. Notice the first thing we find out about Barnabas. His real name is Joseph. But he had a nickname. Isn't that interesting? He had gotten so used, people people had gotten so used to the lifestyle of this man in their presence. He was such a part of the community. Everybody knew him and everyone just knew, oh, Barnabas? Oh, he's a son of encouragement. Yeah, that's his nickname, Barnabas. That's the most encouraging guy you'll ever meet. You're down? (laughs) Go go meet Barnabas. He'll cheer you up. That's the guy you got to be around. This man clearly had this sense about him that to be in his presence was to have your soul stirred. You ever been around someone like that? You know, they just walk in the room and it's like the Holy Spirit blew the place apart. Oh, there's a, there's a new gravity in this room. That was Barnabas. You know, Barnabas is an interesting guy. I might not have another chance to do a, a, a character study on the life of Barnabas than right now, so I want to walk you through Barnabas. We're going to meet him a bunch in the book of Acts. You want to hear about this son of encouragement? Here's a walk of his life. Ready? Acts chapter 4, what we're in right now. We find out that Barnabas took a field that he owned and took 100% of the proceeds and laid it at the apostles' feet. Right? He just said, I I don't need to dictate where this goes. You guys are the apostles. You do it. Here's what I I just want to bless. You figure out where this goes. Acts chapter 4. That's Barnabas, son of encouragement. Acts chapter 9, the next time we see Barnabas is in that chapter. It's at this point that the great persecutor of the church, a man named Saul, has been killing people who are trusting in Jesus. And then Saul ends up putting his faith in Jesus, and everyone's afraid of of Saul at this point. No one will touch Saul. You know who goes to find Saul? Barnabas. When everyone's afraid, and no one will go near the guy. Like, he's like off limits. It's like, ooh, don't, don't catch what he's got. You know who shows up, knocks on his door? Barnabas. He spends time with him. In fact, he spends a couple years with him. Acts chapter 11, he collaborates side by side with Paul in ministry, and they build the great multi-ethnic church of Antioch. They're two of the elders of that church. 
It's incredible. I can't wait till we get to Acts chapter 11. That's like the, one of the centerpieces of the entire book of Acts. We're told when he arrived there, he was glad and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit. That's Barnabas. He shows up, and what does he start doing? Exhorting everybody. Remain faithful to Jesus. I know it's hard. I know they're killing you. I know they're taking your stuff. You stick with Jesus. Imagine being around that guy. Acts chapter 11, at the end of that same chapter, he helps organize a financial relief for those who are suffering in Jerusalem. There, there, was, there was suffering taking place. Barnabas is alive. I know what we can do. Let's take some money from over here, shift it to over there, and take care of it. We can meet that need. Son of encouragement. Acts chapter 13, later on in Acts chapter 13, they go back to the church at Antioch. The elders of that church lay hands on Barnabas, and they send them off, at Barnabas and Saul, and they send Barnabas and Saul off as the first New Testament officially sent missionaries. You know how two weeks ago, we prayed over our missionary team, Team Oasis, that was going to the Middle East? We did that up here on this stage. The first ones to ever have that done, Barnabas and Saul. That's where we got our, that's, that's where that came from. We were just doing what we see in the Bible. Barnabas was the first one. Acts chapter 15. Then there's this fascinating moment where Saul and a guy named Mark, the guy who wrote the gospel of Mark, have this big feud. And Saul parts ways with him. Saul was not a son of encouragement. That was not his strong gifting. He had good encouraging days, but he was not a Barnabas in that sense. Saul parts ways with Mark. You can imagine what Mark must have felt like at that point. You know who goes and picks Mark up? Barnabas. Mark's down and out. He got burned out. He made a mistake. He let Paul down. Paul went the other way, refused to work with Mark. Where does Barnabas go? He goes and he finds Mark. He says, you're not done yet. And then Barnabas and Mark go off on a missionary journey and win many to Christ. Mark ends up writing a New Testament gospel. Son of encouragement. He's a man of integrity. What's going on in here, the things he says, hey, we're all part of this church. Let's talk about the Bible and learn about the Bible. What integrity means is that the principles he says he's living by are clearly evident in the lifestyle he's living. And if you were to dig underneath his tent and you were to find out what's really going on beneath the dirt, what you'd find is it's the same principles that he says on a Sunday when he comes in the walls of the church. It's a man of integrity. There's not this double standard. There's not a double life. There's no hypocrisy there. It's one. This is who I am, and everybody knows it. It's so clear to everybody. It's Barnabas. He's a son of encouragement. Are you that person? Because when you're that person, you're going to start getting nicknames, and everyone's going to know to send everybody to you. We got a bunch of those people in this church. I started putting a list together. I'm just going to call out two of them. I just want you to know them. Daniel and Karis Stark, where are you guys? Sons and daughters of encouragement. A while ago, Karis, you sent an email to my wife, just lifting her up. She printed it out and put it on our fridge. You know how far that goes? You guys, Barnabas, right here. I got many more I could list out. But I just want you guys to know about them. I want you to live that, Right? I, I want this church to be a, a church of integrity. Because look, we all know it. How many times have I preached to you and told you this statistic? The, the, the number one thing the world hates about the church, what is it? It's our hypocrisy. It's that we come to church and we, th- this is, every study shows this. Every book, there, there's a thousand books that talk about this. And they all say the same thing. They're kind of right. 
We, we come into church on Sunday and we sing the songs and then we go and we bury the treasure underneath our tent and we don't do anything about the problems in the world. We're Achans. And it just takes a couple Barnabases to set the matter straight. That's the example to follow. That's what we're striving after in this church. I'm inviting you into that. Now, now we've got an example not to follow. That's the example to follow, Barnabas. I wish that was the whole sermon. Now we've got to get to the bad stuff, okay? Ananias and Sapphira. This is the example to refute. Barnabas, an example of integrity. Holy Spirit-filled integrity. Ananias and Sapphira, an example of satanic-filled hypocrisy. And I'm not making that language up. That's right out of the text. So let's get to it. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. But a man named Ananias... But a man named Ananias. You notice there's a transition happening. It's like the author is setting up this moment of doom and gloom for us. A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter came to him. He said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, no one was forcing you to do anything, Ananias. No one, no one commanded you to do any of this. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. He died. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, yes, for so much. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Read this last verse very carefully. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. First, let's understand what just took place. A very unsettling story. Up to this point, it's kind of like the people of God going to Israel. Things have been pretty good for the church. We've had a lot of awesome, optimistic, look at the church being built stories. And all of a sudden, we hit this hiccup. There's rot building in the camp. What happened? What it looks like is that Barnabas and or Ananias and Sapphira had made an agreement that they were going to come to Peter and they were going to sell their land for so much money and then they were going to bring the, land, the, the money from the sale and bring it. There was, it seems from the text that what happened is that there was this desire for them to be thought of in the eyes of the church like Barnabas was thought of. They saw him sell his field and they said, man, he got a nickname. We like that. That title sounds good. Okay, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Sapphira, we got a land over here. Right? It's worth X amount. We can just say we sold it for the whole amount. Right? And here's all the money. If we give it, people will think we're like Barnabas. We'll get the same nickname. So they go sell, the, sell it. They sold it for more than what they said. They come to the apostles, lay a portion at their feet, and Peter sees right through it. He says, that's hypocrisy. You're just after the title. 
That's all you want in this. It's pure hypocrisy. We're told that in verse 3 that they kept back part of the proceeds of the land. This is what connects it to the story of Achan. That term, kept back, is used only two other places in the Bible. It once, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is telling what Achan did, that he kept back some of the language. It's used in Joshua chapter 7. The other time that Greek term is used is in the book of Titus, where the term is used to, and it's translated stole or pilfering. It's stealing. They stole. They, they, they had an agreement, and then they changed the terms of the agreement secretly in order to get the image on the outside of what they wanted to be seen as. And Peter's main line to them is not that they only brought a portion of the proceeds. The point Peter says to them is, you were free. You didn't have to bring any of it. It was your field. We didn't ask for it. We didn't say you had to do it. We didn't make you sign a contract when you became a member of this church that said you're going to sell everything you have and lay to the apostles' feet. You chose to do that. It was all you. And then you chose, after you told us what you were doing, to keep back a portion of for yourself. It's pure hypocrisy. Peter's concern is not just the outward action. It's the motivation of the heart. It's the rot inside the heart that can consume a person and become a plague in the camp. You know, whenever you're around a, a fire, if ever you sense there's smoke in a room, the smoke is dangerous. If you inhale the smoke from a fire, it can, it can actually kill you. It can be dangerous. But the smoke is not the problem. There's a fire behind the smoke. And whenever you see smoke, what you got to do is you got to get a fire extinguisher and you got to put the fire out. You don't just aim the fire extinguisher at the smoke and think you're going to solve the problem. There's a deeper problem. There's flames burning. And until you deal with the flames, the smoke's just going to keep pouring into the room. The sail was the smoke. The flames was the hypocrisy of the heart. In our life, our outward actions, the things you see, that's just the veneer on top of the heart. And Jesus was always after the heart. Remember how many times he spoke to the Pharisees and he condemned them as whitewashed tombs looking beautiful on the outside and yet just holding dead man's bones on the inside? Hypocrisy through and through. Let me tell you what's really going on in this passage. Let me draw out three observations from this for you. Number one, I want you to see from Ananias and Sapphira the haunting severity of the deed. There is no such thing as a light or menial sin. Right? We, we know Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We studied that this summer. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you've heard it said, if you commit adultery, that you've committed a sin. Right? If you commit adultery, you're sinful. Everyone's aware of that. Everyone in Jesus' day would have said yes and amen. But then he gets to the heart. He says, but if you look at a woman with lust in your eye, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Jesus equalizes the playing field because what he's doing is he's looking at us and he's saying, look, I'm not just after the smoke issues. I'm after the fire. And if you allow lust of the heart to propagate through your heart, it will consume you. It will draw you away from God. And he goes, he be, in the Sermon on the Mount, he starts to go through the outward smoke issues and he points them all down to the fire issue that's actually taking place in the heart. In this New Testament community, they, they needed to make sure that there was no hypocrisy, that people were not using it for their own selfish gain like Achan. Coming in and saying, I'm part of it. I want to be a part of it. I want to get on this stage. I want to I have my name called out. I, I want to do all that. And then really behind the scenes who we really are, when you peer beneath things, it's, it's like everybody else in the city. There's really no change taking place. And I need to hear the, the severity of that sin. I need us to sit in this. 
Hypocrisy is not a light thing. And I'm not going to let us off the hook easy in this sermon. If you don't leave here and you don't leave with a sense of if there is hypocrisy in this heart, which there is, if you don't leave with a sense of I need to root that out now, you have not read the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They died. Here's some questions. Do a self-assessment of yourself to just root out hypocrisy in your heart. Do your words match your actions? Are you prone to speak in public with a grace that you know in your heart you're not living up to? Are you prone to speak into other people's lives words that are actually a higher standard than you actually live out and you know it? You're giving advice that you don't actually follow, but you're giving it in such a way as to make them think you do follow it. Hitting anybody in their heart yet? You know it. And people that are close to you know it too, by the way. And if you're honest, you know it. Do you love to be seen by others? I'm giving you a a Hippocratic assessment of your soul. Do you love to be seen by others? Jesus said, do not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. But when you do something that's good or positive, do do, do you labor to make sure that someone sees it or knows about it? Do you want to make sure that your good deed does not go unnoticed? That people know when you show up, that people see you, that they're aware that you're there. Do you love titles and respect for men? Spurgeon used to say the Pharisees were never so happy as when someone called him a rabbi. They used to love it. Yeah, that's me, rabbi. Do you love the title? Do you love the respect? Do you seek the title for the title's sake so that others will know you got the title? That comes with a weight, doesn't it? I got the title. Titles mean nothing. They don't mean anything. A lot of people can have a title and there's a fire burning in their heart. Give me, show me a life with no title and integrity. I'll take that on the team any day. Do you focus more on the outward part of religion than on the inward part of the heart? Some folks, when they come into a church, they, they know how everything ought to be done. They, they got all the, the comments about how things can be done better. They want to tell us all the things that should be done a little differently. And most of their advice, frankly, is probably right. Honestly, I get a lot of advice on how things can be better. I'll be the first to say, most of the advice I get, we try to implement. It's pretty good advice, and I need all your opinions. It's good. I'm glad. But a lot of times, people come in, and they have all these opinions of how to do things the right way, or how small groups ought to be, how discipleship ought to be. And all the while, inside, there's, it's a personal life that it's like, I'm looking in, and I don't, I don't see that you've earned the place to tell us how to do church yet. There's, there's this dissonance between the level of what you're recommending and the life that abides in it. Some people are all show. What level of that do you have? Are you severe with others but lenient on yourself? In other words, do you know how to call sin out in other people but don't know how to see it in yourself? Some people are very severe with everybody else, very judgmental of everybody else, and quite literally never see the very thing they're pointing outwards as themselves. Now, here's the catch-all of them all. Are you ready for this? If when I just gave you those five points of assessment, all you were thinking in your mind was that I hope someone here is listening to that, that you have in your mind, and honestly, not now, not at this point, it's too late. (laughs) When I gave the five, if you didn't hear yourself... It's the deepest problem of it all. We all have a little Ananias and Sapphira in us. 
And if you can't recognize it, you will not get after the hard work of rooting that rot out of your life. Number two, I need you to see the holiness of God in this passage. The holiness of God is not just an Old Testament doctrine. God is not some holy being on the, in the Old Testament, and then he's this cute little cuddly child in the New Testament. That, that's not who God is. God is holy. I need you to see Ananias and Sapphira died for their sin. Some of us have an understanding of sin that is not developed. It's not accurate. They died as a result of their sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And if you're coming in here right now and you've had a cute, cuddly version of God in your mind and you think, yeah, you can go on sinning all you want, God doesn't really care. Or maybe he does care, but he's pretty lenient. It's not that big a deal. You have not read the Bible and you do not know who God truly is. God will not put up with sin. God hates sin. And New Testament Christians should hate sin as well. We are not just interested in cozying up next to sin. We're not interested in flirting with disaster, pushing up against the boundaries of sin in our life. We hate sin because we know that God hates sin. Their judgment was immediate death, and God would be perfectly justified in doing the same to any one of us for the sin in our life. He would not be unjustified for that because we know the wages of sin is death. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I read this to us last week when we took communion. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Anyone who eats the bread and drinks the cup, speaking of the Lord's Supper, uh, without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why some of you are sick and some have died. We have a very underdeveloped understanding of the holiness of God. Too many of us have an image of God that's far too small. Our God is a holy God who hates sin. Our God is a holy God who punishes sin. We're told in Scripture that the wages of sin is death. Ananias and Sapphira got what they deserved. Now this brings me to my third point. Great fear came upon the community. Notice, I'm not letting you off the hook. You're waiting for the grace. I'm getting there. I need you to hear this first. Number three, there was great fear that came upon the community. Verse 11. You know what I fear most from this passage? It's that most of us see a whole lot of Barnabas in ourselves and just a little bit of Ananias and Sapphira in ourselves. But if we're very honest, most of us actually have a whole lot of Ananias and Sapphira in ourselves and a very little Barnabas in ourselves. That's what I fear most. And, and just speaking personally, I fear that for me personally. I read this passage and I think, how, how much of, I know it's there, how much of it is actually there? And I don't like the answer when I'm honest with myself. And there should be a right and proper response of fear in a human heart, in a Christian heart, when we think about the level of hypocrisy that we bring into this place. When we think about the fact that, that the rot that could so easily plague the church, it starts right here. The great revivalist preacher Jonathan Edwards preached one of the most famous sermons of all time called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. If you have never read that sermon, I recommend you go look it up and spend some time with it today. Today would be a good day for you to spend time in that sermon. In that sermon, he wrote this. Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead, and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell 
And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. The picture he's drawn in this sermon is that God is sustaining your life. And were it not for that mercy, if he were to just remove his sustaining power for one second, the weight of your sin would plunge you into the eternity of bottomless hell, the bottomless gulf. And your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. Were it not for the sovereign pleasure of God, the earth would not bear you one moment. I need you to hear two things. Do not leave this place without both of these things. Number one, if you do not fear, the pro- if you do not have the proper reflex to the story of Ananias and Sapphira, of a healthy fear of God, You have not heard this story, but I need you to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. That though that is true, there is grace upon grace for sinners like us. There is mercy at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ for sinners like us. And though what every single one of us deserve is the consequences for our sin, that is what Ananias and Sapphira got. Jesus offers forgiveness on the cross. Now look, some of you are in this room and genuinely what you have been saying to yourself is this, somewhere beneath, beneath, beneath this, is if people actually knew what was in my heart, they would never receive me. And maybe you've been saying, if God actually knew what was in my heart and what I've done, they would never receive me. And I need you to hear this as clear as you've ever heard it. The gospel declares and demands that that statement cannot be said by a Christian because there is no depth of sin that Jesus has not fully forgiven on the cross. His blood is perfect. It atones for every bit of sin in your heart. There's no story that you've ever been a part of. There's no place in your life. There's no hidden dark corner. There's no treasure buried underneath the dirt that Jesus's blood on the cross has not fully forgiven. And a healthy church is a church that says, Expose it all. Let's go into the tents. Let's, let's dig it all up. Because you know what? Every one of you, and myself included, have got some treasure buried down there. And here's what a church is. We all look to the cross of Jesus Christ. We say, it's so good. We've been forgiven for it all. How could we not literally expose it? And we boast in our brokenness and just say, look at this. Can you believe that's me? Look at this. Do you know what I'm like? I know what, I'm, what I deserve. I know who I am, but Jesus had mercy on a sinner like me, and he had mercy on a sinner like you, and that makes you and me brothers and sisters. Can we sing hallelujah for that today? Can we say thank you, Jesus? Because I'm telling you what, I'm telling you, when a church family begins digging the dirt out a little bit and getting the treasure out that you buried underneath, when you start telling, what was the word in Acts? Bold testimonies of the power of God. Forget about it. (laughs) Forget about it. It, it, You can't stop it. It's when you bury the treasure, you pretend like you're good, you leave your house, and you put on a veneer. Then, Then we just play church for a while. That's not what the blood of the cross is about. He forgave it all. How do you respond to this? Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite the band to come up. We're going to do something we haven't done since COVID started. It's been over a year, but this used to be a regular healthy habit of our church. Go ahead and stand up. I think the proper response to this today is to have a true season of repentance and prayer. We're going to be led in worship in just a little bit, but first, I need us to sit 
in a place of honest repentance. If you are a deacon or trained as a prayer warrior, can I invite you to, to take a, a stand around the walls of this church? If I could have one or two in the back walls, maybe one or two over in that far corner over there, maybe a few kind of around here. Around this room are folks who are trained in prayer. They're trained in in loving and, and, and just coming alongside you and opening scriptures and dealing with this, the, the yuck and the muck and the mire that's in our heart. And all of them, by the way, <laughs> they need prayer as well, myself included. But we're going to have a season of prayer. Here's how this is going to work. The band's going to pray. And I'm just going to invite you wherever you are to pray out loud. They're going to fill the room with music. They're going to fill it so you're not going to hear the prayers of the person next to you. If you came with somebody, here's what I want you to do. I would love for you to turn to them, and maybe this is so awkward for you. Maybe you've never done this before in a church. Let me just say this. If we didn't pray in a church, how hypocritical would that be of us? Wouldn't that be so strange? Wouldn't that be like, wait, they talk about prayer, but then they don't actually do it when they gather together to worship God? That would be the strangest of all things. So we're going to actually pray. And it's going to be uncomfortable for some. The band will play. I'm going to invite you to pray out loud. I'm going to invite you to actually, if you came with someone, maybe it's your wife, maybe it's your husband, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's your children, pray with them. Confess before the Lord. It's that good. He receives those prayers. He does wonders through them. Some of you need to come and pray with somebody because there's something on your heart and you know it and it's bubbling inside of you like a little flame and you need to release it. The great release valve in a Christian's life is repentance. Did you know that when you, when you don't repent and have a practice of doing that in community, you're just bottling stuff up and one day you explode and you release that by, by coming to church and, and going and praying with somebody. And so I'm going to invite you in this next, we're going to spend five minutes or so, get up out of your chairs, walk around the room, find, find a space, find a deacon. You don't, you, this doesn't have to be done in a certain orderly way. Find somebody and pray with them. Ask them, tell them what's going on, and have them just pray over you. Maybe you're not comfortable with that, you just want to stay where you are and pray privately. Totally good. Do that. Spend some time with the Lord. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to say the words, church, pray. And when I do, the band will play music, and I invite you. Spend the next few moments praying, and I pray the Spirit moves among us. So Holy Father, Heavenly Father, we come before you with a spirit of repentance, Lord. Would you do the work of rooting out the rot inside of our own hearts? It's there. God, and I pray for a Holy Spirit-filled movement of prayer in this place, not just before our Sunday gathering, but in it, that you would actually move in us right now to pray out loud, that this room would be filled with out loud prayers being com coming up and filling our ears, that we would actually say, look at this body praying out loud, believing the words they say they preached about, that they actually believe God hears and moves. God, would you stir us to mighty prayer in the name of Jesus? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, pray.